crosswalk. We're making this journey to the cross, to ultimate victory and Easter Sunday. And so we began this walk, this journey, this Lenten sermon series, 40 days, not counting the Sundays, on Ash Wednesday. And on Ash Wednesday, we are reminded that each and every one of us is going to die. And none of us like to be reminded of our mortality, but we stressed our need for God and an invitation to to take this period of time and set it aside to be special, to be holy. It's the most uh, important season in our Christian year. We're reminded of our mortality. The last two Saturdays in a row, we've had services of death and resurrection right here in the sanctuary, small immediate family gatherings with people watching online across the country. But on the first Sunday, we we had some really difficult things to wrestle with when we took a look at the 25th Psalm. We were reminded that we all of us need to trust, to wait, to have a willingness to learn instead of this attitude that we know it all, and maybe hardest of all, to repent, to acknowledge our shortcomings. Just last week, we heard another difficult call to deny ourselves. I don't want to deny myself of anything, but we're called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to truly follow Jesus. But today in our crosswalk, we're going to encounter Jesus at the temple, and the Jesus that we're going to encounter this morning is different than the Jesus that we encounter the other 51 weeks of the year. So important is this this event that all of the Gospels contain it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the synoptic Gospels, the same synopsis, they're really interested in chronological time to give an uh, an orderly account. And, And those three Gospels have this taking place really just at the end of Holy Week. This is this is what kind of led everything to the end. But John, John is less concerned with chronological accounts. John encourages each and every one of us to be a theologian. And you might not think of yourself as a theologian, but I promise you, you are. Everyone who asks questions of God, everyone who strives to understand God more fully, is indeed a theologian. You don't need a degree to be a theologian. So instead of having this at the end of the gospel, as the others do, John has this in chapter 2. Jesus has just done his very first miracle, changing water into wine at a wedding in Cana in Galilee, up where he is from. But now we go to this. And so I'm in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The text is on your screen. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple... He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? 
but he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so before I dive in, would you pause with me just for a brief moment of prayer? Dear God, as Jesus came to the temple long ago, so come into our lives. As he overturned the tables of the money changers, so overturn what needs to be different in our lives. Startle us this day, Almighty God. Startle us with his immediacy, his urgency, and give us integrity to hear your word and to answer with our courage and our faith. Amen. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever been surprised when someone that you had never seen get angry before ever suddenly is very angry? Maybe you thought this person didn't have the capacity to be this angry. You had no idea they could be this mad. I wonder if this is what the disciples and those who were following Jesus, I wonder, is this what they experienced? Whoa, Jesus is really mad. Have you ever had an experience like that? I mean, Jesus making a whip? Or had they seen Jesus like this before and we just don't have an account of it? I've been surprised by anger of someone that I had never seen angry before. I have very fond memories of my father, especially before he got sick. I have great memories of sitting on my dad's lap or sitting next to him while he read to me Winnie the Pooh. I was what my siblings call an oops baby. I'm more than a decade younger than all the others, but my parents said, oh, no, 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 you're not oops. We, we wanted you, we wanted you. And so my dad was a bit of an older father to me, and, but I just loved it. He would take me fishing. And I remember one day before he got sick, we were at Lake Mendota right down there, and we just got into a school of bluegills and perch, and every time we threw that worm in there, boom, it was hit right away. That's, that's fishing. I remember this time of year when the snow was melting and the rivers would, would be created, we would go out and we would try and find the best sticks, and we would have stick races down to a finish line that we determined. I remember the way my dad smelled. I remember being next to him as he opened up another pack of Camel unfiltered cigarettes, which ultimately led to his sickness. But as soon as our cat Gertrude heard that sound, she would come running because my dad would take that foil off and crinkle it up into a ball and the cat would just bat it around for hours. About once a week, I was asked to look under all the couches for those little cellophane, cellophane balls. I had never seen my dad angry. And then one day I was in their bedroom and there was a hole in the door about the size that a fist might create. I didn't see it, but my mom said, oh yeah, your father put his fist in there. And I couldn't, couldn't believe it. Well, one night after, and I'm positive he had already been told he was sick, for the first time, I really saw that anger. It was never addressed at me, but it was an anger. It was a rage. My dad never once 
hurt me. He's, he spanked me once at a dinner table, and I'm positive I had it coming, but it, he didn't make, it wasn't hard enough to hurt. I also remember my mom chasing me around with the plastic flyswatter, and she never once caught me, even though I'm positive she could have. But it's alarming, isn't it? When somebody who is the symbol of love, the symbol of protection, somebody who, who will do anything, be saf- sacrificing of self in order to have your life be better, to all of a sudden see them angry? Didn't Jesus know you're not supposed to be angry? Surely Jesus knew what the psalmist said in Psalm 37. Refrain from anger, it said, and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. And Jesus' teaching, those closest to him, knew that, that he was against this kind of thing. James says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And come on, Jesus. You yourself told us in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you, you said, Jesus, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the counselor, counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And yet here we have Jesus, a bit more than upset. There is a difference, friends, between uncontrolled rage and righteous indignation. Both are called anger, but it is a slippery slope. You and I, we really need to beware because we all have this capacity to claim or to justify righteous indignation when we are really simply just filled with rage. One has the opportunity to be a noble act of justice, but uncontrollable rage, that's just simply sin. And we know we have been taught, we proclaim that Jesus was the one without sin, so we are left with two questions. What was he really so mad about? And what does that mean for us on our crosswalk here in this Lenten season of 2021? Our responsibility, friends, is to determine what was symbolized in this act. Now, I'm aware that there are a couple of dozen women in our women's ministry who are reading a book by Amy Jill Levine. Um, They just call her AJ. She is a Jewish woman who's actually a professor at Vanderbilt University uh, teaching uh, Christians, really, about, about faith. But they're reading a book right now called In Entering the Passion of Jesus, A Beginner's Guide to the Holy Week. And I am positive that these two dozen women are going to hold me accountable for uh, giving the, the proper message here. But in her book, AJ, as they call her, notes that this was a potentially very dangerous thing for Jesus to do. There was clearly risk involved in this. People would notice the temple has police. He could have been arrested. But one of the great things in this book is she really helps the reader understand what the temple was like. And we're going to have a picture of the temple on your TV screen. And this, this is a, kind of a reenactment of it. And it doesn't give us the full scope of the range of it. Uh, she puts out in her book that, that this is as large as 12 soccer fields put together, together when you consider the, all of it and those courts, courtyards outside of it. Um, she also suggests that Jesus overturning a couple of tables in one spot might have gone unnoticed by other people on the grounds. But here's what we need to know about this temple. 
By the time Jesus is fashioning a, a, a whip of cords, this temple was already considered a tourist attraction. A tourist attraction. And with it being Passover, it would have been as crowded and as noisy it would, as it would ever get with pilgrims. Now, I don't know if you can see it very clearly here, but there were five notable courts, the most important of which was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest would go and, and represent all of the people to bring about atonement for the year. There was a court of priests, there was the court of Israel, there was the court of women, and outside the outer court was the court of the Gentiles. And it was there on the outer court where the money changers would be. Offerings needed to be in the correct currency. You see, people who were traveling from other countries, faithful Jews or even curious Gentiles who were coming forward, they would have different kind of coinage. And certainly, a coin for an offering would not sit well if it had the picture of Caesar on it. And so, there was money being changed. And what we know is the exchange rates were not always fair. It was here where animals were bought, brought for sacrifice. And you know, my, my millennial daughters, they just can't fathom how slitting the neck of a lamb and letting the blood pour out brings forgiveness from a God who, who they were growing up being heard was loving and, and grace-filled. Yet that was the practice at the day. And so rarely would anyone bring one of their own animals on this long journey. And if they did... It was remarkable how often one of the priests would determine that that animal had a little bit of a blemish and thus not be fit for sacrifice, and so a new animal would need to be purchased. Now, A.J., in the book that, that our couple dozen women are reading, she argues against Jesus' anger being directed at the unfair practices of exchange, and I would argue her that point. It was a huge part of it but not all of it. The temple, according to the Old Testament writers, is a house of prayer for all nations. It was supposed to be a place to worship God, and it had turned into something else. It had even turned into a quote-unquote national bank. And Jesus had such great zeal for the house of the Lord that what he saw happening sickened him. And it moved him to action. What he saw happening was actually the people in power creating a hindrance to worship God truly and fully in the way God deserves to be worshipped. And so, friends, we know, and we can get rid of the temple there, that there are things happening all around the world as well as close to home that really should be offensive to people of faith. Suffering and starving children Hatred based on color or creed. Starvation as we as a country throw away enough food each year to actually feed the world. Yes, Jesus forbade anger against a person in the Sermon on the Mount, but he does not forbid anger against systemic evils, against hypocrisy, against exploitation, harassment, molestation, drug pushing, human trafficking, and so on. As A.J. writes in her book, such forms of injustice should make us angry. And anger should lead to, not rage, constructive action. Now, we must be very careful how we use that powerful emotion of anger because if we don't keep control of it, 
we go out of control. It is right to be angry about injustice and sin. It is wrong to be angry over trivial personal offenses. But I have a question, thinking back to that temple. Are churches today houses of prayer for all people? Or are they houses of prayer only for people who look like us, walk like us, talk like us? The ancient church, the ancient temple, and the present day church should be places where people not only find community, but welcome the stranger and have people repenting of their sins. They should be places where people promise to live a godly life, be instructed into how to do so, and then keep their promises. The temple was built as a witness to God and a means of of drawing persons near to God, and yet it had turned into an object of adoration, an end in and of itself, and therefore it was ripe for destruction. And as I've been reflecting on that, it's sadly true that in some cases, a building is at times more important in the eyes of many than the purpose for which it was built. This church was built bricks and mortar to house ministry and to worship, to equip people to leave this building and go out and be God's children. You know, I I think about my church prior to coming here. That church was such a fast-growing church, and it started out in a gymnasium, an elementary school gymnasium. And people, the word was on the street about this church, Stillwaters, and they would say, tell me about your church. And they would say, oh, we have a great church. Worship is contemporary, which was still pretty new back then. We have a wonderful youth program. The kids are involved in the leadership of worship. We are sponsoring refugees from Serbia right now who have been out of their home. We're tutoring. We're involved in missions both locally and statewide. There's just a great vibe there. What did you hear there? You heard ministries and relationship. And when they were done talking about their church, and they would say, and by the way, we meet at the gymnasium at Jackson Elementary. After the building was constructed, people said, tell me about your church. And they would say, oh, it's over there by the Humane Society. Do you hear the difference? Building versus church? Building versus house of God to sustain and to support and to equip ministry. Fred Craddock wrote, Those who know that Christ is our sanctuary also know what the church building is and is not. And so I've been reflecting on that little quote this week too. And and I really believe that, you know, during this pandemic, for those for whom worship is only tied to a church building, or a particular sanctuary, or a particular chapel, or to a particular seat where I have sat for three decades, those people no doubt over the last 51 weeks have suffered in offering up pure, true, and holy worship. Then Jesus talks about this temple. And it says in that text, he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, we know with our gospel eyes, we know how the story ends. We know that Jesus gave himself up for us. And we know that within the temple, the curtain that was meant to house God, to keep people out, was torn in two, that God was out there on the loose, and that there would be an end to animal sacrifice in order to be in right relationship with God. 
Those early Jewish followers of Christ took comfort in the idea that Jesus' body was for them a new temple in the sacrifice of Jesus and in the eating and drinking the wine they could find the reconciliation that they had previously only found through the letting of blood of animals through sacrifice. Now that's why we call Jesus the sacrifice of sacrifices. Kind of a theological word and I just told you you're all theologians. The Paschal Lamb. The Paschal Lamb. Levine ends her chapter with three things for us to think about. And I want us all, I want more than just 23, 25 women to think about it. I want the entire congregation to think about it. Think about Jesus' body as the new temple. How do we worship? How should we respond to such generosity? Secondly, the body is supposed to be a welcome place for all people. Is it really? Are we really a welcome place for all people? And finally, our own bodies. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are told that our body is to be a temple for the Holy Spirit. How are we caring for our body? Our body, mind, and soul need to be in such connection. And so we do give thanks for John's telling of this story. And we know that elsewhere in John, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the bread of life. We also know that Jesus, in a powerful encounter, said, I did not come to condemn, but to save, to save all. And so we are reminded that on that last night in the upper room, as he was gathered with these disciples, there was no righteous indignation. There was no anger. I, I wish I could have been in that room to hear the tone that he spoke. I would have loved to have he heard the voice of Jesus. But he took a common object on their, on their table. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And that loaf worked its way around and I don't think they really understood what they were receiving yet. When the supper was over, he took one of the containers of wine and he said a prayer of thanksgiving. And then he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins, for everlasting life. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And so we have the opportunity to share together in this holy meal. I'm going to offer a prayer of blessing and dedication of these elements and for you who have those elements at home and for our communion kits for those of you who are going to sh come here between 11 30 and 12 and then we will join together in the lord's prayer and then we will partake all of us together and so let us pray almighty god pour out your holy spirit on these gifts the bread of life and the cup of blessing we thank you god for the temple that is Jesus Christ and for the temple that we are for your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that Holy Spirit to pour out and to bless these elements that they might truly be for us a bread that sustains life like no other bread and a cup of blessing that blesses us with forgiveness like nothing else but you can. Lord, make us one with you, one with all your children everywhere. We ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ who has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so, friends, I invite you to partake, knowing that you are precious in the eyes of God and that you are loved, that eternity awaits. Take, eat, and drink.